0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. My guest today is Jonathan Delafield-Butt, Dr. Jonathan Delafield-Butt. He's the director of the Laboratory for Innovation in Autism, University of Strathclyde um, in Glasgow, Scotland. He's also a contributing author to Infant Minds, Origin of the Social Brain. That's a book that he has a a chapter in that he authored. So... uh, Dr. but thanks for coming. I appreciate you being here. How are you doing today? Uh, very good, yes, and
1: uh, thank you for inviting me uh, onto your podcast.
0: Yeah, so um, you focus on infants uh, and their mindset, I guess, and their development. What, what got you into this area of study?
1: Uh, well, infants in particular because it's the first uh, expression of the human mind, uh, the human mind in a body, um, and I'm very interested in the nature of uh, what is the mental Uh, quite a good idea to start at the beginning. In fact, um, in my uh, postdoctoral work and in the work before that, I studied chemistry um, as as an undergraduate uh, student um, and then moved into neuroscience uh, for the same reason, to understand the structure, the composition, and the origins of the human mind, Um, neuroscience being a very good uh, beginning of that since a lot of our experience is contingent on the brain, um, and the brain is made of cells which are made of chemicals um, so that fits together but then to really understand the uh, the expression of uh, experience of the mind then we need to look at the living the whole living organism and uh, the first instance of that arguably is at birth um, but what our work has shown and many others is that in fact experience doesn't just begin um, at the cesura of birth but in fact it's it's an emergent or a gradually developing process um which has you know obvious characteristics uh at, at birth and in, in babies. So that's what um that's what got me into it and that's why I study babies because it's the first expression of a of a whole human mind working um in concert with other people.
0: Yeah, I guess that's why there's a debate as to uh you know when a woman's pregnant at what point is the uh is the fetus alive or conscious of what's going on you know so i guess consciousness begins from some place, and then evolves and uh, becomes more and more until the, the baby's born and then uh, keeps going from there
1: yes and i think that's something of the picture that that we're developing and we can start to map that out by not only understanding brain development and the development of the body so the skeletal musculature and the way that the nervous system is able to innovate and to control that for its own purpose which is really an important feature for its own purpose because as soon as the organism can act of its own volition or of its own will um, then it has agency in the world and must by necessity uh, be conscious of it in some degree uh, consciousness um, being um, the, the the thing of knowing or the thing with knowing um, so the infant, as soon as it has that capacity, we can argue, um, is conscious. And it's a question then of not laboring ourselves um, with uh, with uh, unthought-through baggage of what we mean by consciousness. Um, so we uh, use a very operational definition of, of acting with some semblance of knowledge. Um, and that can be observed in the particular motor act, the, the actual movements of the infant or the movements of the fetus, uh, or indeed, if you want to push back further the movements of the developing embryo so in terms of that growing organism and that uh, development of conscious awareness uh, it's a very interesting question in one way to start to pinpoint um, this emergence of consciousness and the, ju- the development of human agency is to map with empirical precision the, um, the detail of movement and try to discover um, with reason and logic uh, when those movements are first organized with an awareness of of where they're going. Um, and when that awareness is uh, is active, then we can say with some degree of certainty that that infant is acting consciously. Um, so this is this is very much a, 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 an important question, and you're right, it's not a... Uh, it doesn't just switch on at nine months, um, post, post-coitus, as it were. Um, it doesn't switch on um, at nine months after birth when the first semblances of language begin to appear. Um, it's something that, that develops... Um, That develops gradually, Um, but I think it's important to map out these incremental steps.
0: The weird thing is, how can we have um, consciousness but no memory accompanying it? You know, like I've never heard of anyone that remembers their birth. I've never heard of anyone that remembers being in the womb. And you know, if you think about, it's weird. Um, I guess we probably remember one tenth of one percent of all the days we've ever lived. Yet we still are who we are. Mm. So it's weird, you know.
1: Yes, and but do you remember what you were doing, you know, uh, three years ago, um, in 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 detail? And the answer is perhaps not quite precisely. Um, And and memory is a very interesting thing, and that's that's another kettle of fish. But of course, we typically think of memory as being the memory that's uh, accessible to verbal recall or articulating it in language. So we're speaking using words. Uh, and that has a specific, very precise, uh, defined knowledge. Um, but memory is richer than that, and we know that from experiences of trauma, for example, how the memories become embodied and they're uh, encoded in patterns of association uh, and arousal, the affective or the feelings that are associated with particular events that, that, are, that are common to that trauma. So we don't just have a, a verbal explicit memory uh available to verbal recall but we have an implicit memory uh, which can be encoded in different ways and you know how precise and how uh, well mapped out um, our early experiences are in terms of our fetal life or our very early infant life or our child life um yeah is, is, is another question and there's lots of uh experts probably much more with much more detailed knowledge than i about that but um but in terms of uh, psychotherapy and psychotherapeutic processes. I mean, a lot of those processes are working back um, to rediscover, as it were, um, those those very early memories, especially when they are of a traumatic nature that has caused um, you know, development to proceed in a way that's not very healthy or very beneficial for the individual. So there is the, the point is there is a, a memory, but it's not perhaps an explicit memory; it's more implicit.
0: Well, So what's the consequence of that? You know, what have you learned about? Infants and their cognition levels, and I mean, what kind of surprises have you discovered? Uh, well, some of the uh, earlier work was
1: has been very interesting. So, so one of the questions that we've had, um, t- to give a kind of precise definition to when does the infant, um, when can we say the infant is conscious and acting with its own intention? Um, we've worked with a philosopher, Nivedita Gangopadhyay, who came from dan Zahavi's. Center for Subjectivity Research in Copenhagen, taking philosophical principles um, and trying to, and we work to apply those to the biomechanical precision um, of mapping out human movement. So one thing that's interesting about human movement is we need to know um, prospectively where the movement is taking us. And this is uh, ingrained in the in the biomechanical properties of the human organism and the way that the nervous system is organizes those movements and the uh the lawful moving which are uh, inertia and momentum in particular directions so in biomechanics they use a terminology called prospective organization so there's a there's a uh, prospective organization of any particular Individual infants. So we mapped these out um, and uh, we came to understand that this prospect of organization is very evident um, at birth um, in terms of its uh, spatial temporal pattern. Um, and then by looking at the work of other people um, and some early conversations we had uh, with Daniel Stern from New York and uh, Alessandro Piontelli at the University of Milan. We began to a more qualitative examination of fetal movement. Um, at about the time that we were looking into this, um, some groups from Italy um, started to produce some very nice uh, mapped out spatiotemporal data on the arm movements of uh, fetuses. And what one of those papers showed was that a fetus will reach to touch the other twin in the case of a twin pregnancy. Um, with a different action pattern than it will use to touch the placental wall or the umbilical cord, so the mm-hmm. relatively inanimate object environment. but that action pattern is closely comparable to the movements it will make to touch his or her own face. So what their data are showing is that the um the twin, in the case of a twin pregnancy, appears to have a the first semblance of awareness of another animate other uh, in in its environment, which is similar to him or herself, and that uh, is evident at about 14 weeks gestational age, which is the beginning or towards the beginning of the, uh, the second trimester. So it's a very early uh, time to, to, to think that actually the fetus might be aware in this, in this uh, rudimentary uh, way, but nevertheless aware of the effects of the action that it's creating. So that it's, that's, that's the fetus' own self-generated action. Then um, it's demonstrating a prospective awareness and anticipatory awareness That's of amazing.
0: the consequences of that act. Yeah. So, how sophisticated is the uh, cognition uh, of a fetus? You know, you talked about reaching for its twin, let's say, at at 14 weeks, but close to term, do we see a lot more sophistication, or does it kind of stay at uh, a base level, you know, through birth? Yeah. Well, this this is where, uh, interestingly, memory
1: might in to, to play a role, and also, um, you know, where the development of the uh, of the brain uh, fully um, plays a plays a major role. So, at 14 weeks gestational age, the nervous system is still quite immature. So, that the the cortical layers have not uh, formed fully. Thalamocortical connectivity, so connect, the connecting the cortex uh, to the midbrain and to the the brainstem, and therefore the rest of the body, is not fully formed. So the cortex, uh, for all intents and purposes, is relatively offline um, compared to how it will be in a few months' time uh, near, near to birth, um, but yet that infant, or that fetus rather, still has a lot of uh, control and, sh- and is demonstrating this anticipatory awareness, um, which suggests that the that awareness is a very um, fundamental structure in the nervous system and is not cortically dependent, so it's not dependent on the, the neocortex, which is our most evolutionarily um, recent uh, addition to the brain. So it's something very fundamental and something shared with, with other animals. Um, and this leads us to the notion which Yach Banks, have a, the affective neuroscientist uh, at the University of Washington, um, uh, first made out that, in fact, we, we have this layered conscious awareness or this layered awareness of, uh, of, of the actions of our um selves on the world. Um, and the brainstem mediated one is the um, is the primary layer and what he termed simple uh, the core self, uh self capital using capital S E L F um, and he termed simple ego type life form. So this core self um, was is dependent on the integrative action of the brainstem uh and not the cortex. And it is nonetheless aware and can be conscious and can ha- can evaluate the world and act purposefully um, make a decision, act purposefully within the world, uh, to engage the world, to produce effects that, um, that it particularly desires. So this is the very beginning of the, uh, of, of our experience as a complex uh, human self, is this very early core self. And what's interesting is that that core self never disappears, of course, but everything gets built up around it, you know, so that basic brainstem integrative structure is still there in all of us, uh, and it's still experiencing the world. And acting out within it um, very fast, I should say. So it can act um, very quickly to changes in the environment, such as if you trip and fall, um, you don't need the cortex to adjust yourself and to correct your posture and stop yourself from falling. Um, that can be done through more, uh, more basic um, midbrain brainstem systems.
0: Wait, so is this, cortex, um, could you consider the brainstem a subservient but separate system of thinking?
1: Uh, well, actually, it's probably the other way around. The the cortex is probably uh, subservient to the brain stem uh, because the brain stem satis- seeks to satisfy our uh, our needs. So it's it's also in, it's a, a visceral regulatory system. So it's regulating our the activity to the cortex um, and this is uh, you know, this follows work of, um, of, of Jach Bengtsep, um the late Jach Bengtschep from, from Washington but also Bjorn Merke Uppsala, a neurologist um, in Sweden um, and indeed in the States Penfield and Jasper from the 1950s 1960s with their cortical resection experiments, they, they were neurosurgeons a lot of work um, taking um, similar traumas similar difficulties um, and they were surprised in their neurosurgical experiments that actually they could remove uh, large pieces of the cortex or take the cortex offline in the case of some surgeries, and still the patient would have uh, a very high degree of residual consciousness. Hmm. So they developed what they called um, the centrincephalic theory of consciousness, and this is a term that they introduced in the 1950s to to share the notion that actually consciousness was centered at the center of the encephalon uh the center of the being the, the midbrain brainstem structure and was not so dependent as one might imagine on the activities of the neocortex, which is where neuroscience typically spends its time looking today. Um so we have a very neocortically centric view uh, of brain function and of consciousness in neuroscience. Uh and and uh Bjorn Merker wrote an excellent paper in BBS about ten years ago. Um Bringing out all of the data on consciousness without a cortex and labeling it a challenge to cognitive neuroscience because there's an awful lot of data that shows that actually you don't need a brainstem to be, uh, sorry, a cortex to be conscious. Um, you really just need the integrative machinery of the brainstem. So th- there's a lot of work in this area, and what we're beginning to understand now is that that core self, contingent on brainstem, healthy, efficient brainstem integration, um, then becomes layered with. With memories from uh, from the midbrain structures and, and the cortical structures, um, and becomes more sophisticated in this abstract conceptual organisation uh, of of those memories with the um, with the integrative activity of the neocortex. So, in, in a sense, all of our experiences are taking place through brainstem, and we're writing those experiences on a sheet of paper, which becomes convoluted, uh, and is the neocortex. So the so. In terms of memory stores, um, we're also understanding that the brainstem does have associated memory, uh, actually intrinsic to it, um, and, and is not dependent on uh, on other structures, hippocampus or so.
0: So, okay, does well, that help? a little. I mean, so what does that mean? What's the consequence for uh, you know, in, in looking at our minds again? Do we have a separate brain, or is it just uh, the brain? at different levels will be predominant at different times depending on what's going on with us or what we're doing or, you know, when you boil this down, what does it mean?
1: Yeah, I, I, I suppose you're right in a sense that, um, some aspects will be some areas of the brain, some parts of ourselves will be more, um, to the foreground than others. Um, depending on, depending on the, the need and the, you know, your, your particular situation. So, um, you don't want to be theorizing, um, using your, uh, the heavy machinery of the neocortex, and 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 uh, reflecting on the world when you're playing a football game, um, you want to be acting very rapidly and uh, and becoming instantaneously aware of the other player's actions and responding to those um, using instinct, as it were, um, rather than the, the heavy labor of thought. Um, but at other times, you may wish to think through problems, of course, and you would sit at a desk and, and think through problems, um, and and these are abstract, conceptual. Um, the thoughts and, and abstract conceptual work that is dependent on the cortex. So I think it's somehow an interplay between these these different layers and and all of the memories and associations um, that we generate by doing things in the world and by learning about our effect on the world. Um, so yeah, I mean I th- it, it, it's interesting, but I think it would it would our centre of gravity, as it were, oscillates and, and fluctuates according to you know time of day and and, and the task at hand.
0: So in, does this balance shift in infants? Or, you know, again, what have you discovered that's unique about infants versus adults? I mean, if we look at an adult who's sleeping, you can say they're not conscious or they just have a different kind of consciousness, you know. So I guess who's to say that infants aren't uh, just as conscious as we are in different ways? I don't know.
1: Yeah. So, um, well, I, I think that's, that's the key is that they are um, as conscious as us. Um, but they don't have the same um, cognitive tools, as it were. They can't perceptually discriminate uh, as, as accurately um, as, as we can, um, certainly, and that's mechanical in the very beginning of life. Um, they don't have the same conceptual organization, uh, the a- abstraction of ideas, the same rich store of memories, and so on. Um, they haven't developed language, um, which becomes a, a, a really important tool of cognition. So they don't have these features, give us our adult, human, uh, sophisticated, technical mastery of the world. Um, but they do have the basic human experience of being in the world with other people. Um, and and that is largely, that's largely affective, as well as uh, an understanding um, of, of how the world works. So babies communicate from the very beginning of life, and they communicate to engage with another person, a sensitive, caring person who's able to respond to their movements um, their cries, their their interest, and their feelings. Uh, and when these are responded to by a sensitive other who has noticed in, uh, and wishes to respond or to care, uh, then the infant responds as well, and, and we have this reciprocal uh, cycle of, of communication and activity. And that's all conveyed through body movement, expressions of the voice, um, through the way that we adjust and shift our posture, the way that we might reach to uh, to pick up the baby, to hold the baby, of course, once the baby is held, we have very rich experience of sharing um, our uh, more uh, autonomic physiology, our bodily feelings, heartbeat, respiration, temperature, perspiration. You know, all of these things can then be sensed, and this is why, for example, um, in at birth and in, in early infancy, and um, the medical profession now typically recommends um, skin-to-skin contact um, to allow that embodied communication to really flow. But of course, we know that. It's much richer even than uh, than simply through touch um, and sharing rhythms of breath, of breath. We're actually beginning to communicate in narratives or in stories. Um, so the way that a baby moves in response to the mother's voice or the father's voice or the grandmother's voice or um, or anyone else's for that matter um, initiates what we come to understand as narrative. Um, so it's this beginning of a of a story, a shared story between individuals. So the infant responds to the, the feelings, the intentions in the voice, <clears throat> and responds with a similar uh, affective contour or energetic contour in the way that the, uh, the the baby moves his or her voice and his or her arms and legs and her body. And that will in turn uh, inform what the, the mother is doing. And as Dan Stone says, they, if in these cycles of excitement, they tend to kick each other into higher and higher orbit until they are elated and joyful and uh, and they come to a deep moment of excitation or climax of the narrative. Uh, and then they resolve and they come back together again and they come back down to a... Um, and the story concludes, as it were. So th- that kind of mother-infant engagement or that father-infant engagement um, goes through narrative cycles, um, which we find in all time-based Human arts, drama, music, poetry, and so on. Um, they have a regular tempo. They have almost a musical structure um, in terms of their, the, the way that the voice is carried one to the other. Um, in fact, Colin Trevarson who's spent a lot of work on that, uh, done a lot of work on this, uh, has named it communicative musicality as a, a musicality in the communication that's conveyed between the infant and the adult, and that starts to generate meaning because the infant starts to learn about the responses of the other, the way that they respond uh, to the initi- to the initiatives and the feelings uh, of oneself, um, and where they lead to from each particular cycle or each particular iteration. Um, and that leads to a knowledge of, um, of the other person, and therefore uh, a future anticipation of what that person will do, and then that's a growing knowledge about how we are together in the world as embodied individuals, affectively embodied individuals. Um, and that's the beginning of human communication, and that's right there from the beginning. Um, and what's interesting is it's it's invariant, you know, throughout human life. That narrative structure, the way that we understand and communicate with other people, um, it is uh, remains invariant. And of course, when the baby learns language and is able to put words into that narrative, um, as the mother's already able to do, and as the father's already able to do, then you have this um, significant enrichment of dimensionality uh, as it were because you can name things and uh, and each time you name something it's not just the, the thing itself but the experiences that you shared together with that thing um, so all of the associations to that particular object um, and then you have then you're into the the domain of language and, and cognition starts to uh, expand uh, very rapidly uh, and very significantly and then you begin to enter into the world that we live in which is predominantly communicated through words, uh,
0: through language, such as this podcast, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm here. What, so, what do you hope to discover through your research? What uh, you know, what are the big breakthroughs you're looking for?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. We I think we need um, we need several things. So, my work has a theoretical line, which is um, which is this embodied communication. Um, my work also has a philosophical line because it's a question of well, where does if, if mind uh, begins in very early infant development. Um, if mind is actually uh, shows itself to be expressed in uh, in very early fetal development, um, as some of these data strongly suggest it is, and uh, and as theoretically we know it is, then you know, we have to push it back further, and we have to say, well, where does mind begin? And of course, when you push it back beyond the fetal period, you enter into the embryonic stage, um, and then you you're into really biological principles of uh, integration of experience from, from multiple uh, a- aspects. Um, and that starts to become a very strongly theoretical and philosophical question about the nature of experience uh, and the nature of matter. Um, and, and that's a particular metaphysical line, uh, which I'm very interested in pursuing, um, because I think it will pay dividends later when we come to understand psychopathology and, uh, and things of this nature. So absolutely, uh, we, I think we need to address the metaphysics of mind and body and get um, you know, uh, properly metaphysical about it in the sense of questioning the relationship between the, the mental aspect of experience and the physical aspect of experience, as it were, um, right down to its constituent um, uh, constituent physics. And uh, and on the other hand, we need to understand human meaning-making in the development of of, of infants and how they learn to make meaning in the world both alone and with other people. Um, and then by extension to that, we need to understand um, the nature of um, neuromotor integration and moving in the world, because that's the core aspect of, uh, of making meaning in the world is because we're embodied, we move, interact with it, and create effects on the world. And that's how we learn about it. So I'm very much a proponent of an action-response psychology and instead of a stimulus-response psychology, which treats the organism as being passive and reactive. Um, rather, we see the human organism as being active and generative um, and creating its own experiences for its own purpose. Um, and by extension to that, we need to really understand um, how disruptions in movement can lead to um, to forted development, such as, in my particular interest at the moment, is an autism spectrum disorder, um, which we know now has a very strong uh, motor component. And one of the questions there is, well, if that, motor component is core to autism as it appears to be um, then well can we do something useful out of that like measure it and therefore detect autism uh, earlier and we're developing technology to do that um, or uh, can we understand the psychogenesis as it were of autism spectrum disorder knowing what we know now about uh, the disruption to movement in early childhood in autism so you know frankly I'm, I'm trying to advance uh, these three uh, these three fronts the metaphysics of mind and body uh, the development of human meaning making uh, and communication with the role of movement being central to that and then how that motor disruption can lead to disruptive development such as autism spectrum disorder
0: okay well very good very good well what's the best way for um, people to learn about more you know learn more about your research and about uh, cognition in general what kind of resources do you have for them
1: we have the the lab website which everybody's welcome to browse um, which is uh, it's the laboratory for innovation in autism at the University of Strathclyde Uh, if you google that um, you will find us Um, all my papers or a vast chunk of them at least are available on academia.edu or researchgate Um, and if you're interested in the educational aspects uh, of all of this We've just published a, a book with Colin Trevarson, uh, who's a seminal child psychologist who did, initiated a lot of the work in uh, intersubjectivity and uh, human meaning making in infants, uh, along with Dan Stern working from the 1970s uh, to, the, to the present day, uh, and a colleague in education, uh, Professor Arlene Wendy Dunlop, uh, called um, The Child's Curriculum. So this takes these ideas and puts them uh, into educational practice uh, for improved pedagogy uh, with all kids, especially especially young kids uh, and that's published by Oxford University
0: Press Okay, very good and um, you know, your lab or your work, the best way to, to get to the website where all your work is listed is what?
1: Uh, let me just look it up so it is is dot u-k slash research slash innovation in autism all
0: one word okay very good well Jonathan thank you for coming I really appreciate it great okay thank you for being uh,
1: thank you for inviting me and uh, yeah, I look forward to listening to more of your podcast
0: oh thank you you're listening to the future tech podcast with Richard Jacobs future technologies such as artificial intelligence stem cells 3d printing gene editing bitcoin blockchain